0: Well, once again, for those of you who came in a little bit later, welcome to St. John. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Dion, and we conclude our series, Divided. We fall this week. To get you around our uh, topic for this week, I'm curious, how many of you, how many of you like science? Show of hands. Yeah, all the rest of you are not raising your hands. I'm sorry. You must have had a bad teacher at some point in your life, because uh, science is amazing. Uh, another question, maybe this one's odd. How many of you like chopsticks? Anyone Anyone feel like they're really good at eating with chopsticks? I'm mediocre eating with chopsticks. Anyone can pick up really small things with chopsticks? Tiny things like a single grain of rice? Anyone catch a fly with a chopstick? No? Um, uh, today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine a love of chopsticks with a love of science, and I'm going to show you how I'm going to um, pick up this entire quantity of rice with one chopstick. You ready for this? This is where it gets good. All right. Oh, I'm dropping some rice here. All right. Here we go. Ta-da. It's like science magic right here. Now, you you guys are, I mean, you don't sound that impressed and you should be and I'm kind of (laughs) disappointed. For those of you who are not impressed, you understand the scientific principle that's going on here, what's happening here. Does anyone want to shout that out? What's going on? What's holding this whole thing together like this? It's not glue. I promise you, it's just rice in a bottle. Anyone know what this is? Yeah, friction. Friction, someone said. Friction. It's the same thing that makes your hands hot when you do this. It's the same thing that makes your tires Propel your car forward on the road. That's why if you get a little ice or snow under there and the friction goes away, no longer is your car moving anywhere. Friction is a pretty basic scientific uh, principle, um, but it's really valuable. We couldn't get by without friction. We wouldn't be able to walk. It'd be like you know, trying to walk on an ice rink all the time. We wouldn't be able to move forward. Friction is, is really valuable in science, in nature, in life. Now, I want to ask you this question. How many of you find friction valuable in relationships? Uh, most of us are like, no way, not there. Friction in relationships, uh, friction in relationships, is usually what causes tension, conflict, fighting. Friction in relationships is often what leads to division. And uh, and I know this probably as well as anyone else because, uh, in case you haven't figured this out yet, I'm a pastor in a Christian church. And um, not only that, you know, the Christian church is interesting to look at. I'm a pastor within a denomination called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, LCMS. So I'm a Lutheran pastor, but I'm not just any Lutheran pastor, because in the United States alone, there are over 40 denominations of Lutherans. Here are some of the bigger ones. I think there's seven of them here. Um, Maybe you've heard of some of these, maybe you haven't. There are only a few million Lutherans in the United States. Here are some of the, the bigger denominations, but there are over 40 different denominations, separate groups of Lutherans. And we know that's just a fraction of the total Christians that exist. Uh, if you look at this bigger picture, it's kind of small here. But um, we know that Christianity is, has all different kinds of branches. Starting back in the Great Schism of 1054, a split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church, which was then the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, then we know the Reformation set it off in different directions. You got uh, you know Lutherans over here and giving... Uh, Rise to covenant-free Moravian uh, radical reformers, people like the Hutterites or Mennonites, uh, reformed Presbyterians, Baptists, Congregationalists, uh, Anglican, giving rise to Methodists, Episcopalians. Um, so, so there are all these different branches of Christianity. Some people estimate that there are thirty-three thousand different dump denominations in the world of Christians alone. Now, thirty-three thousand. Is anyone astounded by that number? 33,000 different groups of Christians. Uh, some people push back on that and say, "Now the reality is there's only about 2,000 groups, denominational groups, that the other 31,000 are independent churches. They are denominations of one church. What does this show us? That Christians have a hard time getting along with each other, agreeing with each other. That uh, we see friction as a bad thing. And um, for some of you, maybe that's even part of the reason that you struggle with Christianity. You think, yeah, I mean, you can say that your Christians have the truth, but you Christians can't even agree with each other on what the truth is. There's 33,000 different groups all claiming to have the truth in a different way, and and certainly that has been a huge stumbling block for a lot of people. And this week, you know, I was just reminded again of, of why that is. You know, we can sit around and judge that and say the Christian church is arguably the most divided institution in all the world, and maybe that's true. But this week, I was just reminded of, of how this happens. On Tuesday night, um, Doug Moss and I, we headed out to a dinner with some area pastors in St. Louis. Um, we do this a couple times a year. These are all pastors within our tribe, within the LCMS. Went to seminary with a bunch of these, these guys. And uh, so we get together a couple times a year for, for dinner. And um, on the way home, we were kind of debriefing the dinner, Doug and I. On the way home... I suddenly could see again with renewed clarity why there are 33,000 denominations in the world. Because I'm sitting here with these guys who are part of my tribe, and there's so much. I mean, theologically, yeah, but there's so much that we just, I just don't agree with these guys about when it comes to ministry and how to do it. And, and so I'm, I'm going, hey, you know what? 33,000, that sounds like a big number, but I get it. In fact, I'm tempted to make it 33,001. Um, because they kind of drive me crazy, and they're all good guys. But, but see, when it comes to friction in relationship, it seems like there are some outcomes that are, none of them are good. I mean, on one side, you can just sit around and argue with people and try to convince them of your viewpoint, but I think who has time to sit around and argue with people, or, or who even has time to sit around at a table for 20 years, and maybe after 20 years, you've come to some agreement. I, I think I could sit around for 100 years with some of these guys, and we would never agree. And so on the other side, if it's not about arguing or sitting around waiting to come to agreement, on the other side, it seems like when we get to these friction moments in our relationships with others, it seems like the only other option then is to accommodate, uh, to lay down my convictions, to give up what's important to me, to, to you know, be afraid of rubbing the people the wrong way so I just kind of you know, become neutral or I lose my opinions or I lose my convictions. And I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in doing that either. Often when it comes to friction between Christians, when it comes to friction in any of our relationships, we think our paths are either to argue or to have a summit and eventually, you know, peace talks come together or to accommodate by laying down what's important to us. For me, I'm not interested in either one of those things. So you know what I tend to do? I tend to do what a lot of us tend to do. Instead of arguing or accommodating, I tend to isolate or separate. I drive home from these dinners and I just go, this stuff makes me crazy. I'm just going to go back to our church and I'm going to mind my own business and do my own thing. But today I want to highlight a different way to deal with our friction, our tension, and our relationships. A different way to look at friction as a whole. And that is not to isolate or separate or accommodate or argue and fight. The the thing I'm going to talk about today is is what it looks like to celebrate the friction. You know, when we're with other people who we see things differently or we come to a point of disagreement or our values begin to clash or our understanding about the way the world works or what scripture means begins to clash, instead of moving away, instead of accommodating, maybe it's possible that we can just acknowledge the friction and not just acknowledge it, but celebrate it. Now, I'm going to look at a couple different places in scripture today, and uh, the first one is going to be Mark chapter 9, page 10, 12. This is an encounter out of the life of Jesus where I think he does exactly this. He teaches us how we can celebrate the friction. Let's look at it. It says, teacher, said John. So John is one of the disciples. Uh, Jesus is the guy he's talking to. Jesus, teacher, said John. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, already in this verse, there's so much here. I I love first the nonchalance of this. Teacher, we saw a guy driving out demons in your name today. Really? You saw a guy driving out demons? I mean, that's where I'm going to stop and go, really, where? I want to go see this, right? I mean, this is, but yeah, John says this like it's an everyday thing, just nonchalant. Teacher, we saw a guy driving out demons in your name today. Just, you know, everyday occurrence. Like I saw squirrels in my yard, way too many squirrels in my yard, right? But you saw this guy driving out demons, they're so nonchalant about it. And you get the sense that in Bible days, this stuff happened all the time. And for some of you, it's this kind of stuff that makes you look at the Bible and go, how can you find this credible? This is fairy tale stuff. Demon possessions? I mean, we don't believe in that stuff anymore. This is probably about mental illness. And, and we don't believe that demons exist. So how can I take anything else that they say seriously? And yet I've been to places in the world where demons exist and I've seen evidence of those things. And I don't say that to scare you, but but maybe to enlighten you. Because so often we think we're enlightened about this stuff. We say, no, no, it's not demon possession, it's it's something else. They just misunderstood what that was all about. And yet and yet here's the thing, here's the thing for us in this country. I think for us, evil evil is so crafty. And evil has executed a surefire strategy to just mess us all up. See, see if If I'm evil, then my goal is to wreak havoc in the world. And the best way for me to wreak havoc in the world to cause destruction, to cause hurt and pain, is to do that in such a way that you never see where the source of all this strife is coming from. Where where there's evil and havoc and strife and hurt and pain going on in the world, but you can never see the source, you can never see where the bullets are coming from, so you start shooting at each other. And so sometimes we think we're enlightened about this evil thing. No, 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 demon possession. These are, you know, prehistoric, simple-minded, pagan cultures. They don't understand how this works. Sometimes I think we're the ones who don't understand how this works. Because evil's having a field day with us, and we're yelling and fighting and shooting at each other. And meanwhile, the source of all of this is safely out of reach. No one's even looking in that direction. See, See, regardless, though, here's this man... This mystery man who's out casting out demons in Jesus' name, which I think for most of us would presume, we'd say that's a good thing, right? This guy's driving out demons in your name. Good. We'd look at it and say, Jesus, your movement's catching fire. There are people who don't even follow you who are doing your work. This is a cause for celebration. More people are joining the effort, Jesus. Isn't this exciting? But John and the other disciples say, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. Why? <laughs> because he was not one of us. This is so human of them, isn't it? I graduated from a Christian high school, and uh, actually it was a Lutheran high school, and we sat on a piece of ground kind of in a neighborhood. Used to be a neighborhood school that became a Lutheran school. Um, And on the opposite end of our parking lot, we shared a parking lot about 300 yards away, sat another Christian school, not just another Christian school, but another Lutheran school, high school of a different brand. And we never did anything with that other school. Um, one time we invited them over for a chapel, and we said, hey, you know, we should get together. I two to Lutheran high schools sitting on the same piece of property, basically. We should get together sometime. Come over and do a chapel. And, and uh, you know what their answer was? We can't do that. We're not going to do that because you are not one of us. Again, it's just so human for us to look at the work of other people. And, you know, if they're not one of us, just not to trust it. And so the disciples, even though this guy's doing good work, he's driving out demons, he's setting people free. This is the stuff that they're doing, and Jesus is doing. He's part of the effort. They look at this guy, and whether it's jealousy—like, what if he gets too popular? What if, what if people like him better? What if, what if he's a threat to our popularity, our success? Or uh, maybe it's some sort of, you know, matter of of compliance. You know, for them, you know, breaker, breaker. We have an unauthorized demon. Uh, exorcism happening in sector seven and this guy is going around and he is not authorized you know violating trademark or something like he's using the name of Jesus and Jesus did you say he could use your name no he didn't and so these people are getting all procedural and protectionist like you don't have the right to use Jesus's name so you better stop because you didn't leave your family and you're not following him around and who do you think you are or whether it's other competition or whether it's elitism like well I mean, you've seen that guy? Do you know where he's coming from? He's from that other group down the road. There's no way they can do it right. I mean, yeah, it may work and it may be good, but they're certainly not doing it right. So human. Look at this guy who's presumably doing good things and to say, knock it off. You are not one of us. So whatever you're doing, it can't possibly be good. But I want you to see Jesus' answer. His response is so different. Jesus says, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is, now get this, for whoever is not against us is for us. Then he goes on, truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, because you belong to me, will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus says some crazy things here. The first thing, did you hear it? He says, whoever is not against us is for us. And I have to think really hard about how to say that because that's not how I usually say it or think of it. The phrase that I usually think of is whoever is not for us is against us, right? You've heard that one. You've said that one. And that means if you're not completely on my side, if you're not for me, if you're not on my team, then you're against me and everything you do is wrong. That's how we normally think of it. And Jesus actually says that in another place, in another encounter. But here he says, he says the opposite. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. That's so uninspiring, isn't it? I mean, whoever is not against us is for us. That's like saying, well, you're not ugly. Let's get married. <laughs> you would hope for something more in a proposal, wouldn't you? Than just like, hey, you don't hate me. You're not ugly. Let's go get married. But Jesus just goes, hey, hey. You're not against us. You're for us. The bar, he is setting the bar so low on agreement on what it means to be a part of his group. I mean, no political leader speaks this way, denominational leader, you know, CEO, company leader, ever speaks this way. We always set the bar higher. And then Jesus not only says that, but he goes on and he says something else. And he says, and then I'll tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water. Now, giving someone a cup of water in, this, in the ancient world is like bottom rung it's not even hospitality it's just decency if someone's thirsty you give them a drink of water that's it it's just bottom rung decency not heroic not thoughtful not sacrificial and jesus says and i tell you anyone who gives you a cup of water because you belong to the messiah because you belong to me man, they'll get a reward you're going to reward people for doing just a common act of human decency? You're going to call those people your friends? This speech of Jesus' is it would never make it into a movie, would it? Whoever's not against us is for us, and even the simplest thing, you're on our team, and you're going to get a reward. And if that speech ever made it into a movie, I mean, this is not William Wallace. If that speech ever made it into a movie, it would not, I guarantee you that movie would not win an Oscar. We would find it so uninspiring because Jesus sets the bar so low. And this is odd for Jesus because he's a guy who's constantly raising the bar, not making it low, but raising it higher. He says to people, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you, any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what Jesus does? Raises the bar. Where he says, hey, I'll tell you the truth. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, doesn't just say, "Hey, you know, it's hard for rich people because sometimes you can get caught up in your money." And he goes, "No, no, he's, he's, it's easier for a camel to get to the eye, through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven." He's raising the bar. People are going, "What do we do with this? This is impossible." That's what Jesus does. He raises the bar to an impossible standard for us. And yet here he does the exact opposite. Instead of raising the bar on unity and saying, you've got to be sold out. You've got to be all in. You've got to do heroic acts of sacrifice. You've got to show yourself. You've got to prove yourself worthy of the cause. Jesus says, hey, if you don't hate us, that's all right with us. We'll call you a part of the team. If you do a small act of service for us, you're going to get a reward. We'll call you a friend. See, it sounds crazy, it sounds backwards, but Jesus is actually giving us the first way that we as people who who usually, when it comes to friction, want to isolate or separate or accommodate or fight it out, he's going to show us how we can begin to celebrate the friction, and the first way we can do that is by acknowledging the good that comes from those with whom we disagree. Even when someone is not one of you, and that usually means that we won't trust you, we you know, just kind of villainize all of you, especially especially if you're not one of us in a substantive uh, way. If you think something different about the scriptures or about morality or you think something different about politics, especially when it's a deeply held conviction and you're not one of us, you, you kind of believe differently about that and we disagree with you about some important things. Our human tendency is to villainize those people. You know, if you're a Republican, say, well, Democrats, I mean, no matter what they do, even, even if they voted in our agenda, we'd still be looking at it and going, no, that's not right. There's something wrong about that. That's no good. To paint people with a broad brush that if they're not with you, if they're not one of you, then they can't possibly be doing any good things. And Jesus says, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. If you're not for us, you're against us. Anyone even gives a cup of water to one of my followers, and we'll, they'll get a reward. See, Jesus is saying, acknowledge the good that comes from those with whom we disagree. If this idea of celebrating the friction sounds too crazy, just start with this. Acknowledge the good. First is acknowledge that that good can come from those with whom we disagree. But then look for the specific good. So maybe this guy who's throwing out demons isn't doing it the right way or maybe he didn't get permission or maybe he's got something messed up about Jesus. Jesus is going, can you acknowledge this man's throwing out demons and he's setting people free? This is good. Let's celebrate that. Now, I, I think for um, a lot of us, this, you know, again, th- this is a challenge and yet you've got to face the fact that Jesus does this here. And not only, is Jesus does, not only does Jesus do this here, but this is what Jesus does Especially for us. See, if, if we're honest, even on our best days, our best weeks, when we're trying our hardest and we're trying to be the most faith, faithful people, if if we had to, like, line up on whose side we are, you know, Jesus, holy, perfect, blameless, Jesus who never does anything right, and, you know, then you go down the, the road, I, I think few of us would be like, yeah, I mean, Jesus, we're, we're perfectly aligned with you. We wouldn't find ourselves on Jesus' side, most days. Uh, As Pastor Doug talked about last week, you know, if if we weighed out our deeds, and we said, here's my good stuff, here's my bad stuff. (sighs) If I had to prove myself on the basis of my works, I'd be in trouble. But what does Jesus do? He first comes into time and he says, let me take all of those bad things. I'm going to take that upon myself. I'm, I'm taking it away. I'm declaring you loved and righteous and good. Even if you're not, I'm declaring that over you. I'm speaking that over you. But then you know what Jesus does? He does something else. He, he then looks at us, people who are not always good, not always holy, who have a lot of things going on in their lives that aren't good, and instead of villainizing us, saying, man, you're a bad apple, Only you can only do bad things, Jesus does something so much more powerful. He looks at us, and he looks, he searches for the good in my life and in your life. If you have this idea today that God in heaven sits up there, and, and you're just like, you know, he's just Making a list and checking it twice of all the bad things that you're doing. And, and he just looks at you as if like you're a person who's never going to get it right. And what's wrong with you? You've got the wrong picture of God. So God sent his son to bring us into relationship. To erase our past. To bring us into a, a new identity. A hope and a future. Not only that. Jesus looks at our lives and he scours our lives for the good. And when he sees the good, he calls it out. He acknowledges it. He delights in it. He celebrates it. He encourages it. Even though there's a bunch of other stuff in us that he's looking at and going, I don't know about that. But this, this is good. See, if Jesus does that with us, then certainly we can do that with others. Uh, There's a second big way, though, that we can um, celebrate the friction. It comes from Colossians chapter 3. So we're going to move away from Jesus in that encounter, and we're going to look at another scripture, Colossians Colossians chapter 3. This is Paul. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, these are things that are just kind of like a, a, a given. Paul's writing to Christians, and he's saying, "I want you. I want you to get rid of these things, put to death these things inside of you." And he's speaking to Christians, and you can imagine Christians going, "Like, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we're not really kind on sexual immorality or impurity or lust or evil desires, or I mean, m- maybe a little bit of greed. We're okay with a little bit of that." Um, But idolatry, we're not into sacrificing things to other gods here. Makes sense. We're going to get rid of those things. He goes on. He says, because of these, these things, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. And and again, Christians are going, yep, we used to do that stuff. But Jesus, we don't do that anymore. Uh, We've been saved. We've been found. And and Paul's Paul's going, yeah, yeah. I mean, you used to walk in those things, you don't do them anymore. And then Paul adds something to it that I think must have blown their minds. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. See, um, there were divisions going on here in this church. There was friction going on. And let me tell you what happens, in case you didn't know, about even Christians, when they start to feel the friction... Sexual immorality, that stuff, we are not going to do that. Um, Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. This stuff sometimes runs rampant in churches, doesn't it? And if you're not sure, subpoena me. I've got emails that I keep that I would love to share with you. I'm not joking. I mean, when our values are being stepped on, when stuff that is core to what we believe feels threatened, when there's that friction, I'm talking about that deep friction... Even the best of Christians, who would never do any of that first list, suddenly find themselves getting really angry and slandering and using all all kinds of unwholesome talk. And then Paul goes on. He says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator." Then he says this, here there is, you take off the old self, you're putting on the new self that's being renewed. Now he says something profound. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now I know he says a lot there, but after he sets aside all of the behavioral stuff, he says this profound thing. He says, there is no Gentile or Jew. And I think for a lot of us, we hear that as as almost like a line, an easy applause line in a campaign speech. or at a rally, someone stands up and says, there's no race but the human race. People are going, yeah, that's right, preach it, right? It's, It's an easy thing. Everyone's just going, yes, that's so true. And yet when Paul wrote these words, people weren't going, yeah, Paul, you preach it. There's no Gentile or Jew. They're going, really? Huh. Because in the day that Paul was writing these words, Gentile and Jew, they were about as far apart as you could get in every way. These were two groups of people who were deeply. Divided, profoundly different. There was significant tension between these two communities. Dietary. Jews ate only certain things and would not eat things. There was a whole list of things that were seen to be unclean. Gentiles, they ate things that Jews just found a bore They were like, I can't believe you would eat that. I, I don't even know if we can affiliate with you. Culturally, they didn't dress in the same ways. They didn't even speak the same language. They had very different customs, family customs, values. Economically... You know, at this time in the first century, Jews were an oppressed group of people economically. They were starving. They had no mobility by and large. There were a few who made it out, but most of them were really, really poor. And Gentiles were thriving politically. Gentiles, they loved the Roman Empire. They were citizens of Rome. They had benefits of Rome being in, in power. The Jews, they hated Rome. They were voting very differently they had very different politics. Religiously, even Jewish Christians, so even, even you know, take Christians, Christians who were Jewish Christians, even as Christians, they still observed festivals like Passover and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and they observed the Sabbath in, a, Sabbath in a very strict, literal way. Gentile Christians, they didn't follow any of that, they were still celebrating pagan festivals. And Jews were looking at that like, oh my goodness. And Gentiles were going, hey, it's no big deal. We used to worship Zeus in this festival. We just plugged the name Jesus into the middle of it. And it's fine. We just still celebrate. And they're going, oh my gosh, I can't believe you do that. See, there were huge, huge rifts between these two communities. So when Paul says there is no Gentile in Jew, it's not like a, an applause line. People are going, Paul, how can you say that? I mean, th- th- these people are as different as different can be. So much so that if you read through the New Testament letters of Paul, in every letter he writes, there's usually something about this undercurrent of tension, of friction between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And he has to address, address it. Not only that, Acts chapter 15 Acts chapter 15, there's this wild thing that happens. Um, the church has what I think is its first summit or one of its first summits. And it's, uh, they bring people together. It's kind of like a conference. It's a peace talk. And it's all about this issue of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians and the tension that exists between them. And they get together, all the leaders of the church, and they have this conference. And they say, what do we do about this? The friction between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians is so great. We don't know how to handle this anymore. And you know what they do? You know what they decide at the end of that that summit? They say this, here's their decision. They say, you know what? We have decided that Jewish Christians should go on being Jewish. Feel free to be Jewish. Do all the stuff that Jewish people do. And you know what? Gentile Christians, you just go on being Gentiles. Just keep doing your Gentile stuff. And the only place we're gonna ask you to come together... Around on three things. So so here are the big three things that we want both Jews and Gentiles to pay attention to. Ready for this list? I mean, it's going to be big. These these are the points of agreement between the two of them. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, Don't drink blood or eat blood from strangled animals. And abstain from fornication or sexual deviancy. Deviancy. That's it. That's the list. They don't even break out all the Ten Commandments. They say, hey, you know what? Uh, Jewish Christians, you be Jewish. Gentile Christians, you be Gentiles. In this way, we're going to come together. And and you know what? We're not going to try to erase the differences. We're not going to demand uniformity. Instead, we are going to celebrate the friction. Now, fast forward a couple of hundred years later. After a couple hundred years, things had dramatically changed within the church. And there were no longer Jewish Christians, by and large, or Gentile Christians. There were just Christians. And for most of us, we think, man, that's, that's awesome. See, they all came together. They're unified. They're all one. I'm not so sure. See, when, when the Christian community became homogenous, when it wasn't Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, but it was, just, it was just Christian and they all looked the same, you know what was lost? Let me tell you, something significant was lost. See, at one time when Paul was writing, here's what you had. You had the two most different people in all the empire, Gentiles and Jews. People who had nothing in common and everyone knew it. And yet you had these two groups of people who came together under one household, in in one family. And they said, you know what? We don't have a lot in common, but there is one thing that we have in common that is enough. We believe that Christ is all and is in all, and that's all we need. And so these two very different groups of people had nothing to do with each other. They came under one family. And that unity that they had, that, that fragile, unlikely unity, it rocked the Roman world. Because nowhere else could you find people so different coming together to worship one God. People, you know, people had their own gods, they worshiped their own gods. Nowhere else could you find Gentiles and Jews, as different as they were, coming together and worshiping the same God. And people would look at that. And they would say, Jews and Gentiles are worshiping the same God. What is this? And then they would say, who is this God? And more important, they would say, if Jew and Gentile can come under this household of faith. And whoever I am, whatever my background, maybe I can too. See, that's the second big way that we can learn to celebrate the friction. We can allow our deep differences to be gifts to each other. Instead of seeing our deep differences, I'm talking about the deep things, the, the scriptural things, the convictions that we hold dear that define us as a certain tribe or a group or, or define our orthodoxy. If we can allow our deep differences to be gifts to each other in the body, then we're well on our way to celebrating the friction. Um, th- there's a man Chopstick. Uh, There's a man by the name of Tim Otto, and he wrote a book called Oriented to Faith. Tim Otto is a man who um, joined a community of really conservative Christians in uh, California. Those do exist by the way. Um, he was in the Bay Area, and the really, I mean, very biblically conservative group of Christians. They were actually embedded to do ministry to immigrants and refugees, I think Salvadorian immigrants and refugees. And he found himself as a part of this community. He knew some people who were there, um, and so he, he came, out, came to this place, joined this church community. Uh, but what was interesting about him is that his whole life he had struggled with his sexual identity. And so Tim Otto decided, as a part of this very Biblically conservative community To come out to them As a gay man Now he was celibate at the time uh, But he decided to come out to them as a gay man Now I don't need to tell you Because just me mentioning that right now Makes some of you panic Because these, these are the things That divide people and families This is the kind of an issue That divides churches I mean some of those denominations That I showed you on the board They've, they've divided They've become separate denominations Over this issue alone So, it's an incredibly loaded issue. But I want to read to you just a a small section out of this book that describes what that moment was, uh, was like for him. He said, At one of the first community meetings in this new church, I gathered my courage and said, I'm a Christian and I'm gay, and I have no idea those two things might go together. And then he went on and he said this He said to the people there, He said, If possible, I'd like to try to figure that out with you all. Now, first of all, no one does this, right? Take something that seems like a very personal decision and says, hey, I don't know how to hold these two things together. I, I have convictions about the scripture. I have my own life experience that I'm deeply convicted about. And I'm not, I'm not sure how these things come together. But, but I would like you to help me with this. It's an incredibly um, extraordinary thing. He recounts, he says, after that moment, though I felt suddenly naked, I also felt relief. Though people were surprised, they were also grateful for my openness. And then he says, what Jack, my mentor, said afterwards is the basis for this entire book. Here's what he said. I don't know what to think about homosexuality. But by faith, I suspect it is God's gift to you. And I know you are God's gift to us. And it's interesting the way his story played out. Um, He wrestled with that community. Uh, To this day, he decided to still live as celibate for the sake of their mission, for the sake of the kingdom of God to these immigrants. Thought that would be the best way for him to do that. His community um, helped him with that. And he's now serving as the pastor of this community, of this church. What would it look like? When it comes to these deep issues of differences, those, those things that divide us most, issues of deep scriptural theological conviction about what we believe is true and biblical and right, or, and or those issues of deep personal conviction born out of our experience, the pain that we've walked through, and, and certainly those who have struggled with their sexuality in this way, I mean, you, you know how painful and difficult this is to walk through this. What would it look like if we would try to celebrate that friction, and here's what I mean, if, if we could see that struggle, you know, the personal struggle, but, but the struggle of what do we do with this, if we could see that not as a threat, not as you know, something that's gonna, gonna damage us, not, not that's gonna hurt us or, or cause us to you know, lose our bearings or our foundation, but, but, but if, if we, by faith, by faith, could see even our deep differences as gifts, that God is at work in those things. And we could see that somehow that God is at work in our body. And and, and if we could somehow become gifts to each other, you know what would happen? Not only would we become gifts to each other as we we wrestle with these things together, but I think again, like in Paul's day, we would become gifts to the world because people would look at the Christian church and they would say, where else in all of the world do people who are so different Where do they ever come together and worship the same God? And you know what we would say? We'd say, I know, we're different. And I don't agree with all these people. And I don't agree with their decisions, And I don't even agree with their theology. and And I don't know what to think about all this. But here's what I know. Christ is all. And he is in all. And maybe that's enough. Now, I know this sounds pie in the sky for a lot of you. you know, what does it look like to acknowledge the good in people that we, uh, with whom we disagree? Or what does it look like to see... Are deep differences, these controversial differences, as gifts to the body that we are meant to wrestle through together. See, I, I think Paul shows us what it looks like to begin to walk forward in this way. Because the rest of Colossians, we haven't looked at the rest of it yet. That whole thing about Gentile and Jew. In the very next words, he says these these words. Uh, and here's what I want to do. I want to close with these words because I think these words are our way forward. But I don't want to just speak these words. I want to pray these words. These words that God has offered us, I want to I pray these words back to God. And um, so that means that you know usually you might close your eyes when you pray. I'm going to have my eyes open. You can have your eyes open. So you can see that these are God's own words that he gave to us through Paul that I'm simply just praying back because I think these words are so profound to teach us how to celebrate the friction. So we pray. God in heaven, um, as you're chosen people and God the fact that you call us chosen I know in my life um, I, I feel like I should be last picked for almost every team and, and the fact that you call me a choice person a person that you would pick first that's that's not true and yet I thank you for believing that it's true for declaring that it's true in spite of how I feel God as, as your people who you declare to be holy and dearly loved even though so often we are not holy and we do things that are not lovable God, it is as your chosen people, your holy and dearly loved people that we ask you to clothe us and help us every day ourselves to put on compassion and kindness. God, give us humility. We need your humility. We don't know all that we think we know. We don't understand all that we think we understand. Make us humble. In the face of our deep differences, give us gentleness with each other and patience. Uh, Father, we pray that you would teach us to bear with each other through all of our friction moments that, that we wouldn't isolate or separate or yell or scream. Help us learn to bear with each other and teach us how to forgive one another when we step on each other's toes, when we violate core values that we have, core convictions that we have. Teach us to be forgiving, but not any kind of forgiveness teach us to forgive in the same exact way that we're forgiven by you. And Father, right now, I just rejoice that your forgiveness is limitless. It's repeated. It's undeserved. It's constant. Father, help us forgive people in the same way. And then Father, we ask that over all of these things that we've already asked for, the compassion, the humility, the gentleness, the forgiveness, that you would cover us with love because we know it's your love, not our agreement on everything, not our homogeneity, but it's your love that will bind us together. It's your love that gives us perfect unity. Father, we ask that your peace would reign here in our lives, but in our body, in our church, that it would rule here. And Father, we pray that as members of of one body that you've called us together, that we we would evidence and emanate your peace in all that we do and say. Father, we thank you that you've called us in spite of our unworthiness, that you've declared us chosen and loved. And Father, we thank you that you've made available all of these gifts that we need as people who are so different, to see the good in each other, to celebrate each other as gifts, to live as one body as you continue your work in and through us. We pray in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.